Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this amazing episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek and science contents of Starlog magazines in issues 25 and 26 from 1979. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss the Trek report. Joe Peta considers the work of artist Mike Miner. Bob Vossler considers the Susan Sackett-penned Trek report. Plus, the Motion Picture Progress Report, Star Trek Pinball, Hope, the Human Challenge, and more on this episode of Star Pod Trek. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of StarPod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Starbase Indy is the fan-run Star Trek and science convention held each year on Thanksgiving weekend. Baby Doll, what's the mission of this convention? To celebrate Star Trek's vision of the future by promoting humanitarianism and STEM education. Starbase Indy is mostly Star Trek. They They have Star Trek guests and other guests from science and sometimes other fandoms and and it's just a great uh it's a smaller con so you can go and talk to the people it, it's where you you can just go up and walk around and talk to all the um all the guests and meet other star trek fans and it, it's just a wonderful time meeting other star trek people john shuck special guest this convention we've never met him before so it's always exciting to see a star trek guest that doesn't make the con scene as regularly as some others Yes, exactly. And so so he played a Klingon and a Cardassian, and, and yes, it'll be great to see him. The parties at this convention are amazing. I can't speak highly enough about the Klingon assault group. They rent out a huge suite and deck it out to feel like you're on a Klingon ship. And, and they always have a great party. It's in a huge room, and it's just and it's a lot of fun, and it goes on all night. Starfleet Command has its annual meeting there. Yes, although it's not um, an official part of the convention this time, and it's not on the uh, convention schedule. But since we are members of Starfleet Command, uh, we're going to their meeting. It's always Saturday morning, and and it's it's usually considered Starfleet Command's official con. Yeah, so anyone who's into Trek, we highly recommend traveling to this convention on Thanksgiving weekend. We actually have our annual StarPod Trek's Giving dinner on Thursday night. We've been doing this for years. Yes, since uh, we're, we're available to uh, to actually be in Indiana on, on Thanksgiving night. And a few of our friends are able to meet us there at a restaurant. So it's really nice to be able to do that. Starbase Indy. It's one of our favorite Star Trek conventions. Definitely look forward to seeing more of our listeners there. Starlog Magazine, issue number 25, August 1979. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. 
And we are looking at the Star Trek report from Starlog Magazine, issue 25, back in August 1979. This is a Star Trek rich issue, isn't it? Oh, it's incredibly rich. Tell everybody about the cover. Well, so there is a beautiful uh, picture of the Enterprise, a painting, if you will. And it just, it's phenomenal. And then, it's um, what Mike Miner? I think Mike Miner. Yeah. So, so and then there's an article about, um, or an interview with Mike Miner inside, which you know I'm sure others will talk about, um, in regards to this episode. But there is, what the picture that's on the cover, but there's a two page spread, inside, which I'm like, you know, okay, I want a centerfold of that, <laughs> right. <laughs> It's gorgeous. I'd love to have a poster of that. Me too. Love to have a poster of that. And then when you open the cover, there's another Mike Miner illustration of the shuttle pod and what was possibly the office complex. And then in the distance, you see the Enterprise being worked on in that uh, space dock area, which is a really cool concept of what we see later on in the motion picture. And then if you turn the page one more time and you're looking at page five, there's a big, I'm guessing this would be an ad. Yeah. Yeah. It says Star Trek, the motion picture sign on now for the 1979 80 voyage of the enterprise. And it is a list of what one, two, we didn't even count the number of books. One, no. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, about 15 different books coming out in probably the, what the next six months when, from when right. this was written. And, and they lay out by month when they're expected to come out and who's writing them and yeah. all that. There's some neat stuff in here. There is. I mean, and Bob was drawn over the Star Trek pop-up book. I was digging that. Absolutely. Yes. I didn't know that there was a, um, one of the books in here is the, um, blueprints for the, uh, for the motion picture. I didn't know anyone made blueprints for the motion picture. And you don't, you call yourself a Star Trek. I know. (laughs) Somebody just came in. Hey, that's my Star Trek card. Don't take that. He just left with my Star Trek card. (laughs) I'm kind of bummed. The other one that's in here is uh, Gene Roddenberry's novelization for the motion picture, which came out in December. And then this one, we had some fun with this one. There is a Star Trek space flight chronology book by Fred and Stan Goldstein, which Kelly and I, we didn't think it was real. We didn't think it ever got published, right? Because there was one that was published in the 90s when... The next gen and DS9 and Voyager right. was big. And Kelly and I couldn't place this. Yeah. So everybody knows if we were going to record this live, we would have been on hold for 10 minutes waiting for Bob because he had to order it. <laughs> I went to Amazon and I plugged in their names, Fred and Stan Goldstein. And the first thing that popped up was the Star Trek Space Flight chronology book from 1979. It's in the cart. Yeah, it's in the cart. But this is really cool. This has nothing to do with the Star Trek report. But again, we're geeky fans, and we thought this was really fun. Yeah. 
And being a Star Trek rich issue, we thought we'd bring it up. And there's a couple other Star Trek things in here, too. Um, you read the one about lighting the model. Why don't you yeah. talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so there's an article in this issue about lighting the Enterprise, it's called. And it is a, um, I'll be a brief article uh, for basically a how-to on how to light the AMC original series Enterprise using fiber optics. And they, they describe, okay, now you, you know, want to paint the model first, then you want to, you know, drill the holes and then you want to lens the fiber optic plastic uh, fiber optic through the hole. So, so, you know, it, it's, um, you know, sheds more light and how to glue it in place and then how to run it through the, you know, the saucer section to the, through the neck. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy. I geeked out over that. Sorry. That's cool. Yeah. That's fun stuff. If somebody else is doing that on this podcast, we apologize. Yeah. Sorry. We're we, can't, we can't help ourselves. We've done it before. We'll do it again. Let's talk about the uh, Star Trek report. Okay, this one is go. titled trivia and teasers. Uh, Susan begins by telling us, that the Star Trek offices are quiet with only the sound of typewriters being heard through the offices as Roddenberry is writing the novelization and Susan herself is writing the book, the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. And then Susan gets into um, some trivia questions. Do you have yeah, a couple yeah. in there that she asked Cal? Yeah, there's a, well, I'll just go from the top, I guess. I mean, how many members of the Star Trek production crew are licensed pilots? Hmm. Hmm, kind of interesting. How many, Cal? Well, there were five. So, Gene, there was Harold Livingston, Shatner, Nimoy, and Nimoy's assistant, Teresa Vic Victor. Um, Matt Jeffries is, but he wasn't part of the list because um well was he was he in this uh, <laughs> in the production of the motion picture who who are we talking about jeffries oh no because he was working on um um little house on the prairie yes at the time that's right, right. i couldn't think <laughs> no it's it's the 50 year old brain kind of seized up on me there for a second Absolutely. I thought this was an interesting question here. How many costumes were made for the motion picture? All the of answer them. would be all of them would be 700. That's a hell of a lot of costumes. That's a lot of costumes. It really is. That is. And um, here's another one that Susan found that I also thought was really neat. How many um, original series cast members were on Gene's first show, The Lieutenant. No, quite a bit on this production, right? There's four. Nimoy. Yep. Uh, Conan. Yep. Nichelle. Yep. And Barrett. You got it. Kelly got them all right. I don't have a bell, otherwise I'd be ringing the bell. Yes. But there are several other Star Trek uh, actors that were in The Lieutenant. 
Yeah, one in particular, the star of that show, right? Right, right. Gary Lockwood, who would play Gary Mitchell in the second uh, in the second uh, pilot where no man has gone before. Right. But I guess he technically he's not a cast member. He was a guest star. So oh, I guess you're right. Maybe that's why he didn't make the list. Yeah. Well, he did die. He did. Here's my favorite question. What material was used to upholster the furniture on the motion picture sets? Girdle fabric. Girdle fabric. And today we would call that spandex. Spandex. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. yeah. Girdle material. Girdle material. And uh, of course, here's a big one. How many stages were used to shoot the motion picture? 11. 11. That's a lot of stages. That's a lot a of lot. sound stages. Yeah. There was only like, you know, Two left, I guess. I don't know how many Paramount had, but there's a lot. That's a lot. And to think that they're all uh, being used at the same time, probably, as the production was, you know, working through six months there. Right. Susan then went to the mailbag, and Scott from Seven Valleys, Pennsylvania, asked, will there be a photo novel about the motion picture? And the answer is? Yes. Yay! And it will be published by Pocket Books. Yeah. Now, do you do you remember? I mean, I don't know how many people listening know about photo novels. Do you remember those? Because they did them. Yeah, they did them in the seventies. I think you and I may have talked about this once. Um, They did them in the seventies, and they basically pulled images from the original series, stuck balloons on them. And, you know, wrote in the dialogue. Yeah. Yep. And you've got, you know, like a comic book without the comic part of it. Right. Right. Yeah. But they sold big in the 70s. Oh, they did. I loved them. Yeah. So there you go. The Grease one I had was, you know, lost a little something when there wasn't music actually playing. Hard to uh, get the same feel from the photo novel that you did from the motion picture with Grease. Right. Especially with Olivia Olivia Newton John not singing. Yes, yeah. some are kind of loving. So I have to admit, I never saw that. Was there dancing represented in the photo novel? It was just you, just like the Star Trek one, just picture with the word balloons there <laughs> and little music signs when they were singing. I love the seventies, but sometimes I'm amazed by why, what it produced at times. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. Hey. I don't know if I can continue. All right. Well, we, we I'll keep going. So, so Susan also mentioned several of the books we were geeking over at the beginning of this podcast. Um, and so she lists them and, and, you know, who's doing them and all that. So yeah, we, we gushed over that already. So yeah, we kind of talked about those. Um, I do want to draw attention before we talk about the last section. I do want to draw attention that in this particular Star Trek report, there's a photo uh, taken from the motion picture of Spock giving the nerve pinch to a crew member. And it's the scene where Spock suddenly decides to go rogue 
He leaves the bridge. He's going to go steal the spacesuit and run out and mind meld with V'ger. He's got this in his head. And to do that, he's got a mind meld, excuse me, he's got a nerve pinch, that poor crewman who's on duty where the space suits are stored. Now, I've always been struck by this guy who plays this poor crewman. I laugh at this guy every time I see him because he's got a 70s style haircut with a porno stash. He is he is such the example of the what the typical guy was going for in 1979, isn't he? Very much so. Very much so. Oh yeah. Good-looking guy, you know, for the most part, but he's got that stash and he's got the haircut. And then the look on his face when Spock's giving him the, the pitch, it's 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 classic. Uh, yeah, it's classic. And I went looking on IMDb. I actually went looking. Who is this oh, actor? You would. I had to. And there's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's six guys labeled as crew member that it could be. And then there's like uh, a technician and a couple other people. So I'm not sure who it is. But if by chance you're listening, crewman in the spacesuit storage area, you're awesome. That was great. I love I seeing you every time I watch that film. I hope you're still rocking that mustache. Absolutely. I hope so, too. <laughs> Susan uh, kind of ended this report talking about some some notable awards Right. What, right. Tell us about the first one, Kelly. Well, so the first one is an award Nichelle Nichols is getting. Well, is she's the first recipient of the Friend of the Year Award. And they decided it's going to be an annual award presented by the American Society of Aerospace. And she got this award because of all of the work she did with NASA for um, recruiting women and minorities. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And she spent um, years working with NASA, helping recruit minorities and women. And so it's nice that, that she got recognized for that. Yeah, and it, that's a big deal. Really I is. Think. Yeah, it really is. And then Gene received an award as well. Yes, he received uh, or was honored by the National Space Club. And they presented him the prestigious Freedom Through Knowledge Award. Uh, and it was presented to him at the annual Robert H. Goddard Memorial Dinner in Washington, D.C., which was attended by over 1,300 distinguished guests, including many si senators, congressmen, and NASA officials. I love how she ends the article with past recipients of this award include Walter Cronkite and Bob Hope. <laughs> I didn't know Bob Hope contributed to science and rocketry in space, but hey, he got the award too. He got the award. I'm not even and sure Walter Cronkite did other than his reporting. I guess you could say his reporting. Yeah, the reporting. Space yeah. launches. What yes, the heck was, did Bob? I'm pretty sure Bob Hope did not do a show for the astronauts in space like he did for the troops in Vietnam well, and Korea. And probably not. Too. Probably not. But maybe in a hangar there at NASA. Maybe. Could have. All I know is this seems a little lopsided. That a, a little. Michelle's was actually pretty 
monumental and maybe it's now it was monumental um but back back then i think it would have been monumental gene eh. (laughs) freedom through knowledge award okay good job gene The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, Star Trek speaks to some basic human needs, that there is a tomorrow, that it is not all going to be over in a big flash and a bomb, that the human race is improving, that we have things to be proud of as humans. Star Pod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Progress Report, Star Trek, the motion picture. So it's been nearly 13 years since NBC television premiered Star Trek. And a full decade since it first got canceled. Now the world is on the verge of getting a full-length motion picture. And we knew the history. This goes back to roughly 1975. It was going to be a picture, then a TV show, then a TV movie, then back to a Picture. I mean, there's there's been some jostling around with Star Trek over the years. Yeah, there was a lot of change in, into what what they were actually going to do with Star Trek. They knew they knew they were going to bring it back, but they didn't know in what form. So so now they set it on the movie, and we were so excited to hear about this movie. Do you remember the first time you heard about the motion picture? Yeah, the first time I heard about it was just was just seeing an article on the back of a. I mean. On the back of a comic book, they had an ad for the motion picture. I remember that, too. Yes. It was, it was back of a lot of comics in the 70s had that. It was the Enterprise. Yeah, the one that had the picture of the Enterprise, and at the bottom it had all the actors. The oh, little, like little, little squares, <laughs> right? Yes. Little tiny little squares are all the actors in it. Yes, and, and you I could tell. I was reading tell, the same comics, yeah. You could tell the, um, the, the two new characters there, Decker and Ilea, they were listed there, too. That's right. Right, yeah, that's amazing. That was my first exposure to the motion picture as well. I'm going to throw it out there and say it was the Avengers comics because by 78 and 79, I was reading Avengers, X-Men, Star Wars. So it had to be on one of those. But, but you know, I was reading DC comics, so it was one of those where I saw it. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I grew up more Marvel. You grew up more DC. Yes. Go figure. All right, but this article goes on to say that there, there are production problems and budget overruns, and there are some frustrations that December 7th date was locked in. Because now in retrospect, they're looking at it saying, we should not have locked in this date at December 7th. Yeah, so they were behind and over budget and had to rush to do it. it so it's just amazing that they did get it out. goes on to say that a focus was definitely going to be the special effects because – of Close Encounters and Star Wars, moviegoers were expecting nothing less. And the motion picture they promised was going to deliver, even more so. Well, well for, for us, it's kind of, it, you know, in some ways it's good, but it's also bad. They, they wanted to make special effects the star. I mean, come on, it's the people that are supposed to be the stars of Star Trek. That, well, that's the difference is we as Star Trek fans, what we love about Star Trek is the humanity. The, the things that touch us, the, the little nuances. Whereas with the average ordinary moviegoer, even at this time, they needed to bring in the masses. That's what the desperate attempt was. I mean, now it's all about the international market. At that time, it was about the American market and the razzle-dazzle of it all. 
Yes, and and of course I do see it as they mentioned as um, trying to make it as as great on special effects as as Star Wars and Close Encounters. So so that's what they had in mind, and and they did have a lot of visual effects. That's one of the complaints about this movie. It was just basically just the people on the Enterprise just watching the swirling colors through the screen. Have you ever heard the term, and I think it's such a funny term, like spaceship porn and stuff related to this movie? Yeah, that well, <laughs> yeah, with the spaceship showing the Enterprise when when they were um when Scotty and Kirk were just in the pod Ooh, looking at the Enterprise. Ah. Yes, but that really was a great scene, though. It, oh, it, was, it was so dramatic. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ones that when I look at that now, I think of when I was younger and I first saw it and just, just being amazed because you're able to look at the grandeur of the Enterprise. We never got to see that in the TV show. We just got quick right. flybys. And Yes, and so this movie showed – I mean, they took the time to, to show it slowly and show different different parts of it from the outside. So in that sense, I do like porn. Yeah, ship porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was a great scene. They're saying one of the problems that they're facing at this point, that, now this is just before the movie was being released, is that copies of the script are waking, making their way to the black market, usually selling for between 30 and $50. Many purchasers will be disappointed to learn that fewer than 20 pages of the bootleg scripts remained unrevised through the actual shooting. Another entrepreneur caught selling blueprints of the film's sets was prosecuted under federal law prohibiting the theft of trade secrets and received a $750 fine and two years probation. Okay, and, and I did read about that somewhere else, too, that that someone was tracked down and caught by the FBI for for, for having a copy of the script or for selling a copy of the script. And, and, and yeah, and also it's interesting that their, their fine was a lot more than what they paid for the script. Yeah. But even for twenty to thirty dollars, really, like, what did they say, thirty to fifty dollars? Mm-hmm. Which was a couple a, hundred a dollars of, now, right? A lot of money back then, yeah. Sure. But still, but still, you know, well, now you buy a script for a thousand dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. not before, but after a show has been released, you you can buy a script for a thousand. So <laughs> it was yeah. actually a bargain back then if you didn't get caught. <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, after this, they realized that. If they print the scripts on red paper that it couldn't be photocopied, that's what the Chi and G stars were reading on colored paper scripts. Okay. Right? That, yeah. That, yeah, there were, I did read something about that. And but, if there was a script change, they would put a different color in, like a blue page would indicate yeah. it's a new Well, see, that, that, even, that even goes back to the original series because David Gerald talked about it. For for his script, um, every time there was a script change, like like the first change, I don't remember exactly, but let's say that the first change to a page would be in yellow. Okay. And then if they had to change that same page again, the next color would be blue, and then the next color would be red. Yes. <laughs> so he said like – But it would be lighter colors, though, that you can oh, okay. easily read. If Like a pastel page, if I'm not mistaken, I don't, I don't remember mistaken, what he said, right? but I know each But I think later on they figured color. out if you put it on a dark page – it's hard to photocopy because if you photocopy the dark page, the whole thing would just come out gray. black or gray, gray or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think photocopiers back then were you couldn't do color anyway with with no. photocopiers. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it would that was different. Yeah, and I think. That, but the inserts be, have been consistent throughout the years. Color page inserts. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's what this. Oh, I don't know if they have or not. Yeah, because I haven't read about it recently. But, but the fact that this article, I, I believe they're trying to say that the colors. That, that when the scripts were Ill- illegally sold, they were all white. Like mm-hmm. the original script was all Correct. white, 
And the only mm-hmm. copies that got out was the original script, not all the changes. They were saying that like there were 20 pages of changes made after the uh, original yes. copy got out. Now, during this time, though, the next section of this article talks about the breakdown of the plot. And it says, the film opens up with three Klingon cruisers patrolling their own territory. Now, if I was reading this, I wasn't reading Starlog this early. It took like 1982 when I started reading Starlog. But if I were to read this if with my mindset now, I would say, stop, spoiler. I know, you would have been like that. Like, why wouldn't they put that? Like, I spoiler, this- well, there was no term spoiler alert back then, right? Right, but yeah, putting this in the magazine before the movie had been released, yeah, that's, <laughs> I noticed that, like, okay, they're really putting details in here about the movie. But but this is really, this doesn't really give away the whole movie, it's just the beginning of it, so. But it does say, well, the film starts out with Kirk and McCoy, but no Spock, like, there's a bunch of details in here that are total spoilers. Yes, and so if you're reading it, yeah, I mean, if you if you don't like that, it's going to be like, oh, well, you just read it now. And I, you know, but I know I think I read the magazine back then, but I you didn't were really reading remember. it back then. Yeah, right? I was, but I don't, I don't really remember knowing that before I saw the movie. So some of this stuff just left my mind. Yes. I was just, you know, because you want to see the movie, and and of course when you see it, it's still seeing it for the first time. So it's not like you're going to remember everything you read about it. Goes on to say that the goal in this production was to make Star Trek believable. They wanted to make it different than Star Wars. One of the ways they made it believable is by bringing in a real-world scientist. Yes, Govan Putkamer. And so he was actually a NASA scientist, and he was the uh, science consultant for this movie. And I thought it was great that they got him. And, and yeah, he, he was actually the one that came up with the idea of putting the wormhole in the movie. That was that was in another issue of Starlog, where it said he, he wrote a memo to Gene Roddenberry about a wormhole. That, that was really that, like, it was a new concept at the time about wormholes. And the, the other stuff in the movie, having having the effects and the idea of V'ger and falling into this the, this cloud and merging with another computer, that I assume all of that came from him too. So it, it was just wonderful. And so, they're totally yeah. trashing Star Wars and Battlestar Galactic in this uh, about the science or ba- making it believable, as yes. they said. There would be no dog fights in space. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting too. Yeah, so so they were saying they didn't want to have dog fights, even though it's exciting and it's great to see. But, but yeah, I can see them not wanting to copy Star Wars. They don't really want to look like they're ripping it can off. Can you imagine that? There was a time that Star Trek did not want to copy Star Wars. I miss that era. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the old style of Star What, what was it? 2004 before. That's when they wanted to, well, you could say Enterprise copied Star Wars by making a prequel. Yeah, but not in any other way. No, no, no. Now it's gotten out of hand. Yeah, now you look at Star Trek Prodigy, and it's a complete <laughs> ripoff of Star Wars. But interesting. This is what Yesco says. It says, since there is no atmosphere in space, conventional aerodynamics just don't hold true. You can't bank and turn without an atmosphere. And besides, as a practical matter, if you were being attacked from behind, you would answer that fire with rear-mounted weapons rather than go to the needless trouble of turning around. Makes yeah. sense. Well, well, I don't know because why? Why would you have the rear, the rear-mounted weapons? I mean, I, I can't really just assume that every fighter is going to be made with that, you know. Even yeah, but even in Empire Strikes Back, the snowspeeders had. Remember, he had the, they had the guy in the back, which was the rear gunner. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. Which have I that. like that. Yeah. So that was a neat idea, but yes. just having it on the um, 
the fighters like that you see on Buck Rogers. Yes. I, I wouldn't really expect them to be able to fire from the rear, even I mean, though it makes none of the sense, ships, you're right. All, well, Buck Rogers, didn't they have two-seaters in Buck Rogers? Some were two some and some were, were one. Whereas yeah. in Valsar Galactica, it was all one-seaters. Yes. With the exception of the time in the first episode of Balasar Galactica where Adama said, I'm going to join him with you, Starbuck. So I guess he sat on Starbuck's lap. <laughs> <laughs> Something. It must have been. But um, these are interesting points when they're but really it, breaking yeah. down these other science fiction franchises and saying we don't want Star Trek to be that way. We want Star Trek to be believable. But they kind of found out. The believable is boring, I guess, with the, with the first movie. It was, it, you know, I have to admit, it was kind of slow. We've said that. Mm-hmm. And for a child, it, it wasn't really as entertaining. Not Except, at all. You know, I mean, the part with the Enterprise porn, that mm-hmm. was good, but the movie got, it got less interesting beyond that point, so. It had ups and downs. Yeah, it, it did. And so, and when they made the second, you know, the thing is, the first one, they made all the mistakes and found out how to do the second one, which mm-hmm. was a lot better. Now, the article goes on to say that, yes, there was a lot of secrecy about the scripts, but also secrecy about the sets. Surrounding the sets, there were signs saying no admittance and admittance restricted. And we know previous to that, the Star Trek sets were fairly open. B. Joe Trimble recalls just going to the set and taking tours, and it was no big deal. Like, Can you imagine yeah. that? So they learned that, no, fandom is crazy by this point. They had to have a strict system with regards to how writers and interviewers are going to be there, reporters. They had to sign NDAs, certain things they couldn't be released to a certain date. Oh, really? And now Starlog's releasing everything. I know. They're unloading now. They're unloading everything, just pages of details. Gene Roddenberry goes on to say, there are certain values in Star Trek that we don't want to lose. But we changed other things. We changed uniforms for several reasons, one of which is that the old ones had been designed 14 years before, and they represented the look of the future at that time. And also, as director of several widescreen films, Robert Wise has very definitive ideas about chromatic scales and lines and so on, so we went with his ideas. Wise kept the idea that the uniform should be utilitarian, not gaudy, like Flash Gordon. The feeling of Star Trek is that it should be functional and the people involved in it are not overly impressed by their own importance. Okay, now do you think these uniforms are sensible in that sense? Uh, maybe the two-piece ones. The, the one-piece ones were not sensible if you couldn't go to the bathroom by yourself and things like that. But, but There, I, I there mean, are very I few pockets. When I think of something that is sensible and, and utilitarian, it would have pockets it would have, like you said, functional, not a onesie. Yeah. Um, also, if you're a guy, what's the deal with everyone's junk hanging out? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> – so they kind of – yeah. So I guess they were talking more on – Like you know, no one like, had dancer belts. Right. They did. <laughs> well, I don't know if they had been invented back then. But there was the um, – Yeah, I'm sure they were. <laughs> I mean, there were dancers, yeah. But having the the colors, you know, having it not be as colorful, that was so. That was the idea of being more functional. Like, who cares what color it is? And there's no mention of the bioscanner, which was mentioned in the comic books. It was. To... When I was a kid, I remember ha- looking at the pictures of it, looking at the movie, playing with the action figures, and the whole time I'm going, "What is the deal with this belt buckle?" I thought it was just a giant belt buckle. Yeah, and then in the comic books they explained that it's a body 
scanner yep. sensor. That's right. Yes. That's right. It's one of those weird things that they there's no articles that mention it. There's nothing mentioned in the film, yet they're saying that these uniforms are very well thought out. Yeah, and I'm getting a mixed message there. <laughs> we don't quite see it that way, but I do. Th- but I do think the ones that were two piece, those were okay. Oh, Even I like them much better. Yeah, you're yes. right. They didn't have pockets, and maybe should have. But I guess they're thinking that the military didn't have a need for pockets back then, or in the future they won't. But how are you going to play pool? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> also, they said the touch of realism would be very much evident. They would have modern technology computer banks that would look authentic they didn't want just a sort of stuff with random buttons well we know in the original series that was totally aesthetic sometimes they call them jellies or gummies all kinds of words for just the flashing lights this yes bridge would not have that well well this one was it seemed like it was toned down in the motion picture mm-hmm. they you know they had the more of the um the muted colors on you know in the uniforms, but also in the scenes, the buttons, the all the stuff on the bridge. It didn't really stand out because I don't really remember a lot of it. And I think that was the point. They're they're saying it that it should be more functional and less flashy. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it's kind of like they weren't even thinking, hey, it's a movie. You got to make it. You got to make it look good for the movie. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing they did better in in Wrath of Khan and and following. Having the um, the stuff that looks better on film. Gene Roddenberry goes on to talk about the Star Trek phenomena and saying the reason why it is going into a big widescreen motion picture for the mass public is it's making a statement. It's saying that we are highly adaptable. We humans are wonderful creatures. And it's that optimism that's a relief to many. Star Trek basically presents old-fashioned heroes who believe in integrity and personal responsibility and in taking stands against intolerance. I think that that has reached people. We've attempted to create a story that's larger than life, adds William Shatner. The results of an attempt are shrouded in secrecy now, but the film's premiere in December will prove whether they've or not they've succeeded. And the movie actually did make a lot of money, even though... They, they say it didn't do well, but it actually did very well at the box office. It's just that it it took a lot to make the movie, $40 million, which was a lot for a movie back then. Hi, this is Admiral Rose Sikaran of the Starfleet Command Fan Club. Did you know we are the oldest Star Trek fan club in existence? We invite you to find out more about us at our website, starfleetcommand.com. In the meantime, stay tuned for more information about the final frontier here on Star Pod Trek. Hi, this is Joe Cepeda from Star Trek Nature's Hunger. Mike Miner's Contributions to Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it's a good read. Definitely good material to get yourself saturated into. The article talks about Mike Miner's uh, concept of storyboarding and how it contributes overall to the film's vision. And the article also talks about the, uh, illustrated, uh, how he got into the illustrated occupation and what inspired him and motivated him to pursue a career in art design. How did that happen in the first place? Come on. We want to know. 
And of course, it talks about Mike Miner's many contributions to the film industry as a whole. Not just Star Trek, but all the other movies that he had his fingerprints on. That you could see and enjoy and really, really appreciate. And with all that said, let's dive into the swimming pool. A wonderful world of art, of fantasy, and pure imagination. What do we really know about him? An old college professor of mine once said that people are like books, and your curiosity is the key to unlocking them. You might discover fascinating stories, enchanting tales, and wisdom and courage in this journey that we call life. Mike tells us that he had a slightly different childhood. His father was a film exhibitionist that promoted films. Mike didn't frequent the local baseball field with bat and glove in hand with his friends. No, rather his domain was the darkened movie theater chambers, watching tons of vintage classic films. Indeed, the movies of the 1950s, the science fiction classics, excited Mike. Those were the days when monsters reigned supreme, Rocket ships took us to unknown worlds, and we saw films that filled us with joy and wonder. Mike was fascinated with the films, like When Worlds Collide, Destination Moon, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Watching all these science fiction classics caused Mike to study films in greater detail, to dissect them, to understand the nuts and bolts of what makes a good movie. Burning images of imaginary worlds, enchanting planets that expired him and excited him. These films made a deep impression on his young, impressionable mind, a childhood fascination that would lead to a higher calling to enter the film world as an art illustrator. Mike Miner goes into exquisite detail explaining the role and the purpose of the storyboard and art direction. As Mike sees it, a good storyboard is like a roadmap or a blueprint for a successful film. Films can cost millions and millions of dollars to make, and the storyboard becomes the focal point of the production, like an anchor to focus all the main effort, like a common reference point. There are a great many elements that work together to make a great film. Camera angles, film editing, special effects, set construction, costumes, miniatures, and so on. Mike's storyboard brings all these collective energies together. But above all, the storyboard promotes the storyline and the visual art direction that it needs to go. Art can convey ideas and concepts to the film industry. The storyboard is like a product for the producers of what they may expect to see on the silver screen, a collection of rich art images to sell the film to investors. And Mike knew this all too well during his career. Mike was sort of a hands-on artist, from visual art to props and creatures, working with the full array of art medium at his disposal, from oil painting to watercolors to even 
expandable foam. Art comes in many forms, and Mike was the visual artist that could deliver. Mike Miner was the sort of artist that created his own opportunities, and and he was not shy, and he was not bashful, and he had such a passion and zest for watching the first couple of seasons of the original series that he felt compelled to take his portfolio of uh, artwork to Gene Roddenberry's office and and showing it and and where it had that type of appeal that that look in his art work that caught Gene Roddenberry's eyes that he said hey there there's some promise in this man i want his work i want his images to appear in my in the original series where it would kind of enhance the series because there was definitely something about his artwork that was unique and different and satisfying and portrayed a futuristic look that Gene Roddenberry wanted to wrap his hands around. He immediately got hold of uh, Matt Jeffries, uh, his art director at the time. And Matt Jeffries was um, enthusiastic about this work and he saw definitely saw something uh, that was unique and fresh and would help energize the aesthetics and the uh, visionary imagery of the series that he bought work, bought, in fact, uh, a number of uh, different paintings from uh, Mike Miner that he could use in his sets and in the overall production. So that definitely was a credit to uh, Mike Miner that uh, he did that. But I think that Mike Miner brought a sense of freshness to the original series, uh, third season, with his uh, illustrated works that uh, really enhanced the series and uh, changed its art direction with uh, flowing uh, graphics. Let's look at some of his contributions, especially in the third season of uh, Star Trek, the original series. He produced graphics and paintings space paintings that were used throughout the uh the sets uh especially in uh Captain Kirk's quarters the crew quarters and even the recreation room space art graphics even appeared on the bridge if you look on the uh, overhead view screens and inspectory of the gun that episode he was the man responsible for creating the latex mask of the uh, of the alien being there that appeared in the wickedly cool clouds. He was also responsible for helping uh, Matt Jeffries with the uh, the space helmet construction and the Tholian web, as well as helping to create the simplistic geometric design of the Tholian's web with his tools at his disposal. And let's take Day of the Dove, uh, that flashing, swirling alien creature that appeared in the hallway that seemed to thrive on violence and fear. That was a creation of Miner's world. Mike reminds us that the visual arts alone don't get the job done. There is a need to awaken human emotion and to stir feeling inside to create an atmosphere, to elicit the proper mood. That's where the magic of music comes in. Mike used music to inspire him, to motivate him, to promote his art. And if you don't believe me, just try watching a movie 
with the soundtrack off, and you'll see what I mean. Music is a powerful tool that goes hand in hand with visual graphics, and Mike makes it quite clear at that. They are like partners in completeness, a marriage of two disciplines that come together to create an overwhelming effect and an experience of the senses. Such a combination of music and art produces the overall effect of filmmaking in all its glory. Indeed, it's such an enriching and enjoyable journey of telling a story well. So what were Mike's contributions to Star Trek The Motion Picture? First, there's the planet Vulcan sequence, uh, the bridge set. He definitely uh, did a lot of work there with the, uh, the ceiling and the structure and the weapons control, vacuum foaming to put together the various control elements, uh, Dr. McCoy's office, the sick bay, the diagnostic table, the diagnostic control panels, the graphics, the art graphics in it, all Mike's work built on his previous artwork skills and experience as he tries to put and apply his talents to promoting the film's image, story, and theme. Gene Roddenberry allowed Mike Miner to get his foot in the door of the film industry. Gene and Matt Jeffries had an open mind and a willingness to talk to Mike. Now, they didn't see him as a threat or even annoying, but as young, fresh talent that could add creative art value to the thing we call Star Trek. Getting into Star Trek was Mike's big break. It allowed him to build in his self-confidence and improve on his art, talents, and skills. Mike worked with Star Trek from the original series into Phase 2, into Star Trek The Motion Picture and even into The Raft of Khan, Star Trek II. After Star Trek, Mike was able to branch out into other film projects. Mike was well known by then, and the major studios wanted his talent and skills. He was that good. So Mike's Star Trek roots provided the rocket fuel for a successful career in the film industry. So what were Mike's contributions to the film industry? He contributed to a large variety of various film projects. Take the Martian Chronicles, for example. He contributed to rear projection artwork. And how about Disney, the cat from outer space? Mike contributed to the spaceship design and the interior details. And what about Flesh Gordon? Ah, Mike contributed to the rockets, the miniatures, the robots, and the castles. Oh, my. And Jamaica Reef. Ah, now there's a good one. He contributed to the underwater world sets. How's that? And what about TV's Land of the Lost? He contributed a lot to the uh, miniature art artwork that you see on that. And what about Man from Atlantis? Mike contributed to the uh, submarine fortress work. And oh, yeah. How about Star Wars? Mike contributed to that, too. He put in about four weeks of work uh, on the Death Star miniature and the desert sequences and the spaceport cantina pickup shots. And he says that he was never called back again, maybe because they were uh, working on a tight deadline. But he was impressed. 
with the amount of detail and substance that was in Star Wars, something he uh, that resonated within him. But in essence, Mike contributed to a variety of enriching and rewarding artwork in the film industry uh, that we enjoy today when we see those uh, films that uh, showcase his variety of work and his awesome talents at work. So what do I think of Mike Miner's artwork? Fans have the easy part of watching and enjoying a good film. Now, Mike was the heavy lifter, contributing to the imagination, creativity, and talent to these films. He had the big job of creating make-believe worlds and having us all believe that it might be possible. He added to the credibility of this image, and he had us believe in the functionality of his art. And Mike understood the role of art and art illustration in promoting and enhancing the film story and not calling special attention to itself. Maybe we were only in for the film ride, enjoying the journey in Mike's very creative and imaginative worlds. Mike passed away so young at the age of 46. Now that was a real tragedy and a deep loss to the film world and his fans. But even though he's gone, his legacy on the silver screen will endure. And thank you, Mike, for sharing your wonderful talents. This is Joe Cepeda from Star Trek Nature's Hunger. We are a Star Trek fan film production, and we make creative and imaginative films. We have over 40 films that are posted under YouTube, under Star Trek Nature's Hunger. And we're also under Facebook. Look us up for the latest news on our upcoming films. So check us out if you can, and join us for the adventure. Klingon Assault Group is a, is a group of fans who love Star Trek, costuming, Klingons, and just having fun. We're a bunch of Klingons international. Kapla! A lot of fan clubs take, take it way too seriously, but how can you take it seriously when you're wearing a rubber head and a wig? We know we're silly, and we love it. To be or not to be, that is the question. One of the main things with Klingons is blood, blood and honor, uh, is blood drives. What we do is we challenge different clubs to donate more blood than we do, and they always lose. We always win. Normally, we take the blood from our enemies, put it in buckets, and then give it to the Red Cross. We are Klingon. We are a family that does this together. Ma oh! <laughs> art the Star Trek Pinball Art Contest. We've got a chance to play this 1979 pinball classic. The glass back features all the new ones of Star Trek The Motion Picture. This was made in conjunction to promote the movie. Now check out this contest. Design your own pinball back glass art, and you could win a brand new Bally Star Trek professional pinball game. Or one of 210 other fantastic prizes, worth over $3,000. So check out this first prize. First prize delivered right to your home, the latest most exciting Bally Pinball Game Star Trek. 
This is a full-size professional machine worth $1,800. It has bumpers, drop targets, rollovers, flippers, and all the features that make Bally games so much fun to play. Built with solid-state circuitry, this four-player game comes complete with a $10 roll of quarters <laughs> from Starlog, although you can set the machine so it doesn't need money. Bally's Star Trek will provide endless hours of action entertainment and will be the instant hit of the neighborhood. you got to figure, a pinball machine, space-wise, is roughly the size of two refrigerators. you got to think, in 1979, a lot of homes weren't built like they are now. A lot of homes had one bathroom. I mean, the house that we grew up in, the kids shared a bedroom. We had one bathroom. I mean, that was common of the period. Now, it's a whole different world. Homes are built with bonus rooms, built with huge living rooms, dens. Uh, I mean, houses are just bigger now than what they were. What would the average person do with a pinball machine in their house? There's no man caves back then. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounds like it would, like that this was aimed at kids. And so the kid wouldn't care if there's no place to put it, you know? <laughs> if you wanted this, would you put this in your bedroom? Um, well, I mean, it, you Where'd know, you put it in like your house? I'm saying it like, I'm, I know what you're saying, like it, it wouldn't have fit, but I mean, but as a kid, I mean, you're not thinking about that, you know, <laughs> not at first until th- then when the parents intervene, yeah, if someone just knocks on the door and says, hey, we got this pinball machine for you, and the parents go, huh, and then, yeah. how do you even get it inside the door, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it would have been, because, I mean, I grew up in Connecticut, we had basements in Connecticut. So that definitely would have been in the basement. Okay. I would say probably the basement of my grandparents' house because my grandparents had a finished basement. Okay. So, yeah. So you could have done it. He had a bar down there, couches, the whole nine yards. Where would you put – because you grew up in South Georgia. Would you put it in your living room, in your bedroom? What have you done with it? There would have been space in the house to put it in the – there was a – my parents' house had a big area. It was sort of a living room Mm -hmm. and den altogether. So so there would have been a space space layout. Yes. That's nice. Do you think your parents would have enjoyed having a Star Trek pinball machine? No, not at all. (laughs) My brother would have liked it, yeah. He would have been all over it, right? Yeah, he would have. Second prizes, third prizes, all the way down to eight prizes uh, include Bradley Star Trek watches, color art reproductions, calendars, gift boxes of books, calendars, model kits, all you had to do is write your name, address, and phone number. Also, T-shirt size, just in case you want one of the T-shirts. Yeah, I think that would be awesome to have my own. That's a thing that people could only dream of during that time, of having their own pinball machine. Well, and, and look how much it costs. I mean, but the, some of the other prizes would have been good. The others were more, um, you know, reasonable that you could fit in your home. Just, you know, books, posters, and things like that. The Star Trek USS Enterprise gift set with command chair, console, three telescreen cards, and five Star Trek action figures. Place Mr. Spock or any Star Trek figure into the transporter room. Spin the control knob and press the button. Mr. Spock disappears. Pretend he's left the deck of the Enterprise for outer space adventure. You can capture the Klingon and bring him back to the Enterprise. Star Trek USS Enterprise gift set. Star Trek action figures also sold separately by Mego. 
Starlog Magazine, issue number 26, cover date September 1979. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Alienated Actress Stunt woman, actress, and professional alien Paula Christ certainly gets around. She appeared in the Battle for the Planet of the Apes as a corralled human and as an ape extra as an alien Skrill in Wonder Woman's Return of Andros two-parter, as an Earthling throwback in The Primal Man, and as a citizen of the future in Logan's Run. More recently, she served as the lead Ovian in Battlestar Galactica, the TV premiere and the film, and will be seen later this year as a female alien in Star Trek The Motion Picture. This is kind of odd because it's a promotion of her being available to attend conventions. If you're a convention promoter and you want to reach her, it's saying contact her through Bijo Trimble's ad zine, Megamart. Do you ever recall her going to Star Trek conventions? I mean, it, it almost seems like this is the... It's like she paid for a job ad in Starlog. Or Almost something. like it's it's kind of weird, but it's in the news section, not the classifieds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they made it an article. Um, but but I have heard the name, and I think just because I've read it in Starlog that she was a stunt woman in the motion picture. And no, I don't recall her doing cons, but I I didn't go to cons back then. So so yeah, that is interesting. They put that there. Hi everyone, it's Bob Vossler once again, and this month's segment, uh, or this latest segment, is once again written by Susan Sackett, who I believe wrote them all, Star Trek Report. The article is called The Sounds of Star Trek, and I have to say it has a beautiful color picture, uh, although not a lot of color in the picture, but I believe it was a color picture, stunning shot of Persis... Persis Kambata, I always forgot how to properly pronounce her name, so please excuse me, um, in um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Apparently she had a car accident, but was uh, following filming and was mending nicely. Um, one of the things I always remember from Starlog was to this, their stunning photographs that they were able to get from on set. And uh, this one kind of shows a kind of a glare of her throat, you know, from the the little uh, apparatus that was adhered to her to communicate from V'ger. Uh And just such a beautiful actress, even without hair. I mean, she was even more stunning with hair um, when she would go on to other roles. Unfortunately, one of those other roles was a movie called Megaforce, which I think is so bad it's not even good bad it's just bad bad but we will not get into that here susan recalls how the entire ground floor of building e on the paramount lot had used to belong to star trek and since principal photography wrapped in january the staff had cut way back so much of that office space on the floor had been reassigned to other productions and other production companies. She goes on to say that the second floor on the building had belonged to the television series Little House on the Prairie. But the studio evicted that NBC production to make room for its own projects 
which are badly in need of space. But don't feel too bad, because Michael Landon and company completed uh, their move from upstairs to MGM on the other side of town. A few days later, a burly bunch of guys wielding the heaviest hammers ever designed began tearing out the walls up there. Susan talks about the noise crisis of all that hammering going on. Uh, it was hard to work within their offices. She also mentions how another cast member would be writing their memoirs. When you think about it, uh, it almost seems way too early for any of them to have written their memoirs. But then again, none of them probably expected to have this kind of longevity. But Walter Koenig uh, has written a book of his own experiences and adventures while playing Lieutenant Chekhov. And most notably, his role in Star Trek, the motion picture. Little tidbits like that are what she uh, talks about. And again, about Persis uh, having received minor energy, uh, injuries from an automobile accident in Munich, Germany, where she was vacationing. You know, that's got to be like one of the worst things. When you're on vacation and you unexpectedly get some kind of injury, possibly a serious injury, and you're in a different country, um, it's got to be pretty alarming to go to a, uh, you know, a doctor there, a doctor who may not even speak your same language. And, uh, you know, you go someplace to relax and get away from it all and then end up being in a serious situation. Well, with this accident, she required a few stitches to close some nasty cuts, but x-rays revealed that nothing was broken, and she had been reported as mending nicely. Uh, other tidbits, Jimmy Doohan would be attending the 8th Annual Grand National Mixed Bag Hunt. And Conservation Days, that would be in November 1st through the 3rd, sponsored by the Columbus, Nebraska Chamber of Commerce, which each year the community of Columbus invites selected individuals to attend that nationally recognized hunting and conservation activity. Sounds like fun. And if you're wondering what the great bird of the galaxy was doing around that time, Gene Roddenberry was... uh, giving the commencement address at Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. Remember, the great bird was a a cop uh, earlier in his career, in his life, uh, before um, trading, you know, bullets for, uh, for scripts on television. Unfortunately, in this latest column... There was no mailbag, so there was no letters that she could uh, talk about or answer. Earlier in the article, she also talks about how Mark Leonard went by Freddie Phillips, uh, reopened makeup shop uh, the prior week to have impressions taken uh, as part of the Klingon makeup. Uh, as we recall in Star Trek The Motion Picture, 
That was the one time where Mark plays a Klingon, and at the time it was the new Klingons, uh, or Klingons with a, a whole new look, which I recall when we uh, saw the motion picture, uh, although there were pictures and obviously articles in Starlog showing the new Klingons, uh, there was already discussion of like, you know, who are they? Why are they... You know, that's not what the Klingons look like. But I don't recall it being as vehement a uh, issue of debate, concern, as it was when we saw the new Klingons in Star Trek Discovery more recently. I think we were a bit more accepting, probably because we didn't care as much. We were getting Star Trek back live, and we were getting it on the big screen and I guess we just figured, well, there'll be some explanation as to why the Klingons suddenly look different and they have bumps on their heads. And when we first saw them uh, be attacked by V'ger and the ships destroyed, they looked incredible. They looked wonderful. And I think we were kind of more accepting. And of course, you know, our imaginations went wild as to, well, you know, you know, the Klingons could have several different races. They've occupied different planets, you know, uh, it could be an offshoot race. Uh, you know, I remember some ridiculous theory of, oh, those are the Klingons from up north, you know, like that, I think that was just a, a joke, of course, but, um, you know, and it would take decades for us to get an actual explanation as to why the Klingons look different, and and I'm, I'm I gotta say I'm kind of accepting of that explanation because that way we kind of were able to get back Kor, Koloth, and Kang looking like the what we used to call the Imperial Klingons as opposed to the Terran-like Klingons from the TV series. Um, you know, it, it kind of explained all of that, and um, we got to see them in both ways of course that was many years afterwards but uh, I, I think it was a good explanation and it, it kind of you know was fitting and uh, much as the Klingons were always embarrassed by their uh, irritation of the Tribbles you know it seemed like a very um, insulting manner to, to of all things to be afflicted with a a uh, genetic virus or whatever you might call it uh, that would make them appear like their most hated enemy, the Terrans the Earthers uh, I think that's uh, I think that was kind of got to be the, you know, you no know, wonder the Klingons were irritated although I never bought the idea that that's such a big piece of history, of Klingon Federation history would not have been well known at that point in time and why Dr. Bashir wouldn't know that, you know, especially Dr. Bashir who was, you know, would have had an interest in genetically enhanced, uh, or genetic issues, uh, you know, himself being a doctor and also being a augmented physician or augmented, uh, person. So, um, but I guess they didn't think of that at that time. One thing I also love about looking back to these old issues of Starlog is to see some of the advertisements. And they're advertising some conventions. 
Ah, uh, StarCon in Denver. StarCon Denver 79. Uh, Creation Labor Day uh, in, ooh, looks like uh, Philadelphia. Maybe I went to that myself. I don't, I don't think I started going to cons until uh, the 80s. I kind of missed out on that. Uh, there wasn't that many in New Jersey at that time anyway. Um, Fantasy Film Convention. Uh, that looks like, oh, London, England. OtherCon 3 in Texas. NovaCon 4 in Virginia. NonCon. That's in Pasadena, California, where it was. Intercon 79. That's also in England. And Arcadian Con, which is devoted to sci-fi and fantasy, was in, looks like Los Angeles. Uh, I could be wrong because the, I can't seem to uh, enhance the magnification of my screen at the moment. And it looks like another publication from the same publishers of Starvelog was putting out a book called, a magazine or book called 50s Fever with Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley on the cover. So, yes, it was from Starlog Press. Looking at other articles of that particular issue, there is one that I'm sure I must have read at in, in, in length, uh, Buck Rogers to Buck Rogers, a new generation is turning on to space toys and robots. Um, I certainly remember a robot named Zentor. It was uh, right around the time of the uh, Major Matt Mason phase. I don't think it was made by the same people, but it was motorized, and it was the same... Uh, size as Major Matt Mason and, and his crew. Um, so certainly made for a, a good companion piece. Um, and it's just a joy to look at some of these old pictures of uh, some of the older toys. I can see one that was based on Forbidden Planet with the vehicle platform where we first see Robbie the Robot uh, before he disembarks from that. Um, and some old metal flying saucers. Uh, of course, one of them is called a space station and definitely has a nice 1950s look to them. Uh, 1950s, early 1960s. I remember that Starlog, while relatively cheap in, in on our standards now, but at the time, buying a magazine of that type Definitely put a crimp in my comic book budget, but was always well worth it. Always interesting because the articles would feature uh, inside information and um, definitely little tidbits that uh, some of which still stick out in my my brain um, even now. So uh, it's been a, another joy to go back to look at another issue of Starlog to see what was happening as the release of Star Trek the motion picture was uh, was anticipated and uh, ex 
excitement was building. And it, it, it kind, kind of comes through through Susan Sackett's writing of the Star Trek report. Uh, and I can see why they had her writing this. Uh, just to, to help build the momentum. You know, and that was one of the things I always went to first was the Star Trek report. I'm sure that is the case with many of the other contributors to this podcast and to those listening to it. If you're from that era, <laughs> as I was. Rumblings by David Gerald. Hope, the human challenge. It's no accident that Star Trek is the most popular science fiction television series ever made. Space 1999 and Battlestar Galactica both have the benefit of stronger production values, more convincing special effects, flashier costumes, more imaginative sets, and so on. And yet, Star Trek is still the most popular show. Why is that? Well, this is an entire article based on the premise of Star Trek does not need to be flashy. Star Trek is at its best when it's well-written, and it's about people. That's exactly right. Even though, I mean, Star Trek had some had some neat-looking stuff too. I mean, it's not it wasn't all, you know, that visually boring. I mean, it had some good stuff. I never thought of it that way. Okay, One you have I, young people now that say I can't watch the original series. I, I, I can't comprehend that at all. Well, that's because it, it it looks dated now. It doesn't look like the modern stuff. Well, you know what? We watch horror movies from the 1930s and 40s, Universal Pictures, RKO Pictures. I'll never say, oh, I don't like the original King Kong. It's it's dated. There's there's a certain charm to it. Yeah, I do think you have to have a, a taste for that kind of thing to really appreciate it. All right, so this article goes on to say, Star Trek was amazing for the fact that it had amazing writers. Theodore Sturgeon, Jerome Bixby, Robert Block, Richard Matheson. It goes on and on. What do you think about that? Just the fact that Star Trek hired amazing science fiction writers. They definitely contributed a lot to the show. I mean, yeah, yeah Star Trek had some good scripts. And, and all of these writers submitted great stuff for the show. David goes on to say, But I think there's another deeper reason why Star Trek's popularity has been so long-lived, and it transcends any consideration of production value or story quality. It is in the basic premise of the show that Star Trek succeeds. Star Trek suggests that humanity as a destiny is if we accept the challenge of the final frontier, and the final frontier is not space, it is the human soul. Space is merely the place in which the frontier will be met. In that, Star Trek is firmly in the center of modern science fiction. And and that's been talked about a lot, and Gene Roddenberry said it, that that the show is really about hope for the future and humankind. And and that is a big part of it. It's it's what's there like it's a, it's in the whole premise of the show. And David goes on to say that the premise of the show, that is to seek out new life and new civilization, this is not a job but a responsibility. Do you think that's an accurate description? Yes, I think that's a lot of what of what Star Trek is about. That this is what we, we should do. It's what we need to do is go out and explore. Be, because you learn more about yourself when you learn about other cultures. Yes, he says the very best that the human race has to offer, and as it representatives, all of us, 
It is their job, the people on the Enterprise, to deal with the unknown and possibly, but not necessarily, hostility in the universe. And as such, declare humanity's intention to be part of that universe and work with the rest of the inhabitants for all our mutual benefits. So how does that parallel our lives today? I mean, you see a lot of things you don't like. You you hear things on the news. You see people talk or or on social media, and you you can just ignore it, or you can try to you can talk civilly without without shooting someone. I mean, that's that's the idea. Having meltdowns, breakdowns, destroying property. You can Star Trek teaches us how to talk. That's the best thing that I could walk away from it. Even when I was younger, you could talk through things diplomatically, even if you don't get the results that you want. Yeah, yeah. You you try to reason with people, and you know it doesn't always work. But that's what you try to do. And the and the idea that when you're fighting an alien, that you you know a lot of times when Kirk said, "I'm not going to kill him," or "I'm not I'm not going to kill today," things like that. It, and and he even said it that we do have the the violence, but we can still overcome it. It's it's in our past, but it doesn't mean that we have to do it. And Kirk had his flaws. It was proven multiple times that he was a racist. But but it was still great writing, and it was still showing a lot about humanity. Uh, but one of the interesting things is, you know, someone said they did a, like, like a survey of Star Trek fans, and they asked, like, what do you like about Star Trek? And just about all of them said that it has hope for the future. And then, and then the next question was, what's your favorite episode? And... What what I heard was in, in most cases people gave like they named an episode that was not necessarily about hope for the future. In other words, like it, you know, city on the edge of forever is that that's about not even hope a star. I always say that's not a great Star Trek episode. It's a great science fiction episode, but it doesn't epitomize Star Trek. Right, but but it's just that, yeah. So so a lot of the episodes, like in itself, it might not it might not really say hope for the future, but but it's really what the whole premise behind the show is about. Yes, just people working together. With a common goal. Yes. He goes on to say that let's contrast Star Trek with Space 1999. Now we know Space 1999 is about an explosion on the moon which sets the moon off on a random course. And every week we get to see where the moon passes. Ships that are flying by the moon, planets that are flying by the moon. So there's an advent- a random adventure because of the projection of the moon. It's really a show about people surviving. It's not hope for the future, but it's an adventure show. Yeah, it's it's about people being forced into this situation, so they're just doing the best they can. And, and Voyager has been compared to Space 1999. Voyager was kind of like that too, and they were in survival mode, and they weren't there. Um, well, because they weren't because they it wasn't because they wanted to be there. Good point. So yeah, and, Star Trek as it has branched out does get further and further from Gene's vision of the future. That that's been established. Yes. But but also even as we were watching Battlestar Galactica, the old one, they were just on Cobol and um and Baltar was there. And do you notice when you know when there was it was like an earthquake that happened and Baltar was was trapped and they left him there. Yeah. I mean, like, that, okay yeah. traitor <laughs> you're getting what you deserve. And I and I was thinking that would not have happened on Star Trek. They still would. They still would have freed him and taken him. Even you know, even though they didn't like. That's him. right. Remember in Star Trek Three, Kirk reached out his hand to the Klingon. That's yes. right. That's developed, or that's when he shortly after expressed his racism, his hatred for for Klingons. Yes. Right, because they killed his son. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, 
again, layers, layers of complexity with the human psyche with Star Trek. Whereas other sci-fi just doesn't, never developed it to that extent. And you, to your point, he brings up Battlestar Galactica. There's no hope in the premise of Battlestar Galactica. All they do is want to get back to Earth. That is true. And, and again, and get and away again, from the I have to say Voyager has also been compared to Battlestar Galactica <laughs> too. But, but I, yeah, the Battlestar Galactica had other things going for it. The, the thing is the people on that show didn't look at as intense as on Space 1999. Like, like Battlestar wasn't a, as serious from day to day. You saw people kind of relaxing on, on that one. That's true. Well, but I always I, relate Battlestar Galactica is more like Star Wars. Whereas yeah, Space, Space yeah. 1999 kind of, in many ways, is like Star Trek Phase 2. There's even one episode of Space 1999, which came out before the script, from what I understand, before the script of what would have, what became the child, the next generation. Yes. The look and the feel of it, you had a lot of cerebral concepts. David goes on to say that he taught a class in writing. And he told the students that a good story is about pain and hope and the transition from one to another. Most important is about what we learn in the process of the transition. So we have to ask, does Star Trek do that? Showing a transition from like the way we used to be to what we're going to become. There were some things, yeah, like like showing Khan in Space Seed and... So humans were trying the uh, genetically enhanced humans, which didn't work out. And, and yeah, even showing the, like the captains who, um, who went rogue. I mean, I think that was an idea of people trying to change, but didn't quite work in the way they were trying to do it. And, and in some ways we see the whole, well, the whole evolution of man in, in, in the crew of the Enterprise. There's supposed to be so much, and you can see and there's so much, uh, they've learned more and evolved beyond where we are now. David goes on to say that even when Kirk occasionally had reason to question the authority of Starfleet, he always had himself to believe in, his own integrity, and his own mission. He never lost faith in that. Kirk always um, stuck to his ideals. So David says that the challenge belongs to all of us, to anyone who is going to spend the rest of his life in the future, and that includes everyone. Not accepting responsibility for your own life is also a decision. A decision to live without hope. Hope is a commitment, a willingness to sacrifice immediate gain for higher goals. Hope is the ability to keep your eye on the possibility in the face of adversity. And uh, also Star Trek has the the type of future that people want to live in instead of, you know, you don't want to be lost like, like in Space 1999. <laughs> no Star Trek has the more desirable future. Mm-hmm. Mego presents the Star Trek Universe's new line of 14-inch action figures. Captain James T. Kirk, Earthman. 14-inch Mego figures. Commander Spark, Vulcan Science Officer. 14-inch Mego figures. The Gorn, a feared enemy of the Federation. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. All right, we love closing out by discussing one of the ads that's found in the magazine. This one, Star Trek, the motion picture. Sign on now for the 1979-1980 Voyage of the Enterprise. Not since the original series has there been such a spectacular year for Star Trek fans. 
The highlight, of course, is the release on December 7th of the long-awaited feature film by Paramount Pictures. Star Trek The Motion Picture is produced by Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and directed by four-time Academy Award winner Robert Wise. It reunites Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, and all the other Star Trek stars and introduces two new crew members, former Miss India, Persis Kambada, who plays Ilea, the exotic navigator from the planet Delta, and Stephen Collins, who plays Commander Willard Decker. So there's some major events planned throughout the end of 1979 rolling into 1980, September. They're going to release the 1980 Star Trek calendar, the official USS Enterprise officer's date book, and the Star Trek Make Your Own Costume book. October, Star Trek Speaks, Star Trek Space Chronology, Star Trek Peel-Off Graphics book, and the Star Trek Iron-On Transfer book. Now you had some of those, right? November, the Star Trek Make a Game book. December, Star Trek The Motion Picture, a novelization, and the USS Enterprise Bridge Punch-Out book. January, the official blueprints from Star Trek The Motion Picture, the great Star Trek trivia book, Star Trek The Motion Picture, a photo novel, and in February, the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture, the Star Trek pop-up book, and USS Enterprise Punch-Out book. Out of these, some I had as a kid, and many we have in our collection as, as adult collectors, this is something that I never had as a kid. We have now, but it's the Star Trek Make Your Own Costume book. I loved costuming as a kid. Like, just random. My brother and I would put on makeup and costumes and run around the house with it. When it wasn't Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> just just for the fun of it, just for the adventure. Yeah, and I remember having Star Trek Speaks, um, just a wonderful book of, of all the mm-hmm. best quotes from Star Trek, and the photo novel for the motion picture. I love photo novels. Yeah, they were great. I mean, that's the best way to be able to look at, at the costumes and the sets and everything. I love the idea that they had this in one place where you could where you can buy things. Because Star Trek, it didn't have as wide as distribution as it could have. Well, it still doesn't. still doesn't. <laughs> Even in its heyday, though, it didn't match what other properties were doing with regards to merchandising. Oftentimes, it was still a struggle. Outside of the 90s, the 90s, there was everywhere. It was in Kmart. It was everywhere. But even at this time, it was still a little bit more difficult to find things. I remember going to Walden Books, to places like that, to get some Star Trek stuff. But to have everything in one place, all you had to do was send this coupon. This coupon says, if you'd like to be the first to know about Star Trek publishing events and future news about Star Trek... Please sign on now for the inclusion of the special Pocketbooks Enterprise mailing list. I think that would be cool to have to be on the mailing list for for events like this. Yeah, that would have been great back back then, and that's why why Starlog was so great because it had this article where where it says you could do that. I mean, I and you know, like because back then you didn't have the internet, you didn't know what what stuff was coming out in the future. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.